When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This month on The Compliance Life, I visit with Maria Devonzo. Maria is currently the Chief Product Evangelist at Treliant. Maria has sat in the CCO chair at Cushman & Wakefield, the international real estate company. And in this podcast series, she details how she moved from a small business-oriented law practice into the field of compliance and into the CCO chair and now her role at Treliant. I know you'll enjoy this month's guest on The Compliance Life, Maria Navanzo. In this episode two, Maria details her move into the compliance arena. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of The Compliance Life. This month, we're visiting with Maria Davanzo, and today we're going to take up her move into the world of compliance. So, Maria, as we ended episode one, you and your husband, I believe, were in a small practice together. How did you make the leap to compliance? Yeah, so that's really an interesting story, as with the most compliance officers. So there was, in 2006, approximately 10 years into my law practice, at this point, real estate closings had become the bread and butter of my practice. Refinancings had been booming, as had purchases of homes and investment properties. But little did I know the bubble was about to burst, quite literally. The sign of trouble came when the fax machine stopped ringing. Mortgage brokers and lenders up to that point had typically been sending me closing assignments by fax. When the volume beca- began to slow and frankly stopped, I said to my husband, it's time for a change. And it's sort of funny because I had a feeling I, like I needed a new challenge. Uh, by this time, my husband had left the firm for uh, a different opportunity, frankly, at my urging, because he had champagne tastes and we had a we didn't have that kind of budget at the law firm. Our son was in middle school and didn't really need or frankly want me around all the time. And so it was clearly time for another change. But I had no idea how I was going to shift from a small town country lawyer back into a more mainstream legal practice. I called everyone I knew. I asked for advice, guidance. I vented a little bit, frankly, and I asked for help. Ultimately, a close friend put me in touch with one of her law school classmates who was general counsel of a private equity firm in Greenwich, Connecticut, that focused on real estate investing. He invited me in for an interview, which was funny because they had no open positions, but I went in. And after the interview and a few subsequent telephone conversations, he offered me a job as a compliance officer. They had a registered investment advisor and need someone to look after the compliance function for that registered investment advisor. 
Honestly, Tom, I had no idea what a compliance officer was or did, and I certainly didn't know anything about registered investment advisors. And I had voiced these concerns to the general counsel. I was honest with them. I said, hey, Alice, I don't know. I'd love to take the job, but I don't know anything about that. And his response was that, look, Maria, you're clearly smart and you can learn what you need to know. He pointed out that my experience in real estate made me a good candidate for their private equity shop. And then went on to say that I'd likely be able to go on to do anything I wanted to in the compliance area after I took the role on. And obviously he was I took the job and found myself again in a position where I had no idea what I was going to do to get the job done. I started calling my network again, and a friend of a friend was working at ACA Compliance in the Investment Advisor Consulting Area. I called him and asked him, look, if I were to buy one book to learn about registered investment advisors, what would it be? And without pausing, he told me that the book to buy was Lemke and Lynn's Regulation of Investment Advisors. If you're not familiar with that book, it's about 1,400 pages, soft cover. It's written by practitioners, for practitioners, and provides guidance and advice on how to handle frequently encountered issues, as well as laying out the law and the legal requirements. I read that book cover to cover and re referenced and referred to it often. In fact, it sat on the corner of my desk for four years. I recommend it very highly to anyone who needs to learn about regulation of investment advisors. In addition to that book, though, I attended many industry conferences, and I recall coming back to the office each and every time feeling overwhelmed by what I wasn't doing, but apparently should have been doing, according to the conference speakers and the attendees. Of course, I ultimately realized that you just can't boil the ocean, and I, understand it to, I started to really understand the value of conducting risk assessments in order to tease out and address the specific issues that matter to your company and industry. I'd like to say it's because I was some compliance whiz, but it was really out of necessity. When I arrived at the private equity firm, they had just a simple code of conduct. With the help of Mr. Lemke and Mr. Limbs, I built a program which included conflict of interest disclosures and certifications, a process for reviewing trading statements against no trade lists, which I also maintained, email surveillance, and the beginning stages of an FCPA program. They weren't yet operating in other countries, but they don't assets, hotels, and resorts abroad, so I thought it was important for us to focus on the FCPA aspect of a program. About a year or so into that job, we decided we needed to form a broker-dealer entity. So, Tom, here we go again. To serve as the CCO of a broker-dealer, you need to have securities licenses. So, more research, more reading, more preparation, more test-taking. I even brought index cards and sample tests on at least one vacation, much to my family's chagrin. Ultimately, this little political science major from a small Catholic college in Massachusetts was able to pass her Series 7, 63, and 24 exams. Talk about no challenge, no change. And that Series 7 was more difficult for me than the New York State Bar exam. For, after, after four years at that private equity firm, I was contacted by a recruiter who had an opportunity at AIG in their global real estate entity, which was also a registered investment advisor. And I started as CCO of that entity. Shortly thereafter, was asked to take on two additional roles. One was deputy CCO of their U.S. asset management business, and the other was as CCO of one of their broker dealers located in Wilton, Connecticut. It was, I can only describe it as chaotic. I literally had three jobs in three different offices, one of which was with the group of guys who played a role in the very financial crisis that caused me to move into compliance in the first place. <laughs> it was post-crisis and the U.S. government owned AIG. So as you'd expect, 
compliance and audit were key. While I didn't encounter the usual compliance challenges at AIG, the work, frankly, was a bit boring, and I knew I needed to change again. Dodd-Frank was hot at the time, so hot that we had a conference room of white shoe lawyers in our offices on a weekly basis to update the business and compliance function, functions on the developments, the Dodd-Frank developments, in real time. So I was about to embark upon teaching myself swaps and derivatives compliance when I received a call from a colleague asking if I had heard of the commercial real estate services firm, Cushman Wakefield, and if I would be interested in interviewing for their first ever chief compliance officer job. You bet I would. So that's the story of how I transitioned from a, a very small local practice into this, this larger world of compliance. Tom, Tom, I recovering can't hear you. trial lawyer now, but in that life I represented AIG, and uh, this was all long before 2008 and any of those things. But AIG was a very dynamic company, and the people I worked with at AIG were very smart, very well driven, very knowledgeable, knew what they wanted, and I was always impressed by the people there. Was that your sense when you were there or was it something different after the U.S. government took over? No, that was my sense as well. The, the, the corporate function, the corporate legal function, the corporate compliance function at, its, at the center, that was absolutely my impression. As you got further away, also very smart people, but it, it just became chaotic because the lack of centralization, the folks, and this is probably part of why things went awry. The further you got away from the center, the more folks were doing their own thing and weren't really rowing in that same direction. But generally speaking, as far as the folks there being smart, hardworking lawyers, yes, absolutely. And now that we are in our second episode, I'm really sensing some themes from your professional career, of one of which you talked about literally as far back as college, but it's preparation. I want to maybe use a different phrase of learning your craft. And every stop you've made at literally every firm or every business, it seems like you have worked very hard to learn the craft of what you were asked to do. And that one of the things I try to communicate to people starting out now that I did not do, and if I could tell myself to do something different, it would be take the time to learn your craft because you can always build upon what you learn. And I'm just getting the sense that all of these different things that, that you say you're taking deep dives into research on, whether it's to take an exam or learn it, you have learned the craft of each one of those and you've used that as a building block. Would that s resonate with you? Yes, absolutely. Going back even as far as when I was at the real, when I had my own firm, I had to teach myself something as simple as how to do a real estate closing. I, I didn't know how to do that. I, you don't just open the doors and know how to do a will. Probated, I probated wills. You have to figure that out. You have to learn your craft, to borrow your phrase. And yes, absolutely, that is a key takeaway from my career and a piece of advice that I agree I would give to and have given to young lawyers listening to this podcast or young lawyers that have worked for me or anyone that would ask me. You, 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 you have to, you have to know what you're doing. You have to understand what the obligations are that are on you. There's no way that I could have gone into the chair at Cushman and Wakefield and built that compliance program, I would never have had that opportunity had I not really learned and taught myself along the way what that meant and what that looked like. Much like you, Tom, that you mentioned in, in your career when you came into compliance, sounds like 
you build something from the ground up, you have to prepare yourself for the ability to do that. In addition to your role as Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer at Cushman and Wakefield, you also had the title of Chief Data Privacy Officer. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that role entailed. Sure. That role it came to be, honestly, as a result of the implementation of GDPR in May of 2018. A firm like Cushman Wakefield does not have data privacy as big of a risk area as, let's say, MasterCard or American Express does because of the nature of the data that we have. However, the game changed for us and for lots of players, frankly, in, this, in, in the services space with the, uh, with, the pa- with the passing and the implementation of GDPR. And so, I took on the title of Chief Data Privacy Officer and yet again had to teach myself and learn that craft. And the way I did that, we had outside counsel, we had this fantastic outside counsel who on whom we relied. And I would get on the calls with him and I would just humbly sit there and learn from him like I did when I was a young associate in that first litigation shop, sitting at the knee of the partner, learning how to mark up a complaint and in order to prepare an answer. I sat and I listened and I learned, and then I was able to take what I learned and put in place a privacy program, which honestly, and I would tell the privacy lawyers on my team, my opinion is that privacy program, very much like a compliance program, the framework, policies, procedures, appropriate clauses in contracts, understanding your risk areas. And so it was very, it was similar to me. It was not a difficult thing for me to do because I approached it the same way I did my compliance program. And I have to say my observation also was that um, getting buy-in on the privacy side was a lot easier, honestly, than getting buy-in on the compliance side. And my, my I would talk to my team about that and, th- and they would agree. And that's likely because pr- privacy is such a hot area that impacts people personally. And so it was easy to get the business people to understand the importance of privacy as an issue because frankly, our clients considered it important. So that's a little bit of what that looked like when, when I was at Cushman. Let me pick up uh, on one of the last points you raised because I wanted to explore this with you. My perception of Cushman and Wakefield has always been as an outsider dealing with a real estate agent or a broker or someone on the sales side of things. And they're very dynamic individuals. They're very good at what they do, very driven, highly compensated, and had a focus on getting things done. How were you viewed in comp- as compliance in relationship to the, those individuals? And for those who are listening to this and not watching this, the size of the smile on her face when I asked that question pretty much took up the whole screen. So let's have it. Tom, I think the answer to that question. That being said, it was it was very interesting. I'd been in financial services where those guys were similar. But the difference was... In financial services, there was actually a book I could point to, right? Gentlemen and ladies, you need to comply with these rules because they say so. The government says in a corporate compliance world, there's not any such rule book. And couple that with the fact that at Cushman, they'd been in in business for 94 years without any compliance function whatsoever. And so when I came on board, they looked at me and said, we don't quite understand how you fit in here. There was a lot of change management involved in in, in that role. I'll leave it at that. Maria, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us for part three, our next episode, because we're going to take some deeper dives in some of the lessons learned, some of the key challenges you faced and overcame while Chief Compliance Officer. So I greatly look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. 
I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. In The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.